right now is 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, September 18th, 2023. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. In tonight's news... We celebrate as a sculpture by a local Native American artist finds a home at UW. We follow up on proposed rate hikes from two Madison Energy companies, this time from a health and climate change perspective. We hear from a political science expert on what might have motivated state Republicans to kick off their own redistricting efforts. And we take to the streets in Madison to hear what affordable housing actually means to the city's average resident. All these and more on tonight's news. This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Last week, WORT reported that Planned Parenthood in Wisconsin is restarting abortion services in Madison and Milwaukee. Today, those services officially began, with a clinic on Madison's east side restarting abortion services. The move comes following a judicial ruling in July that was skeptical of the legality of the 19th century law on Wisconsin's books that may be interpreted to ban abortions, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The legality of abortion in Wisconsin remains murky, with some local prosecutors and judges signaling that they will prosecute under the old law if a clinic opens in their jurisdiction. Protesters gathered outside the Planned Parenthood in Madison to protest the decision to reopen. The United Auto Workers strike enters its fourth day of work stoppage, with economic ripples beginning to be felt across the Midwest. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, Ford announced that workers at its body construction department in Michigan should not show up to work today due to a shortage of parts because of the plant closures. And General Motors warned that its plant near Kansas City would likely have to close this week due to a shortage of materials. The three companies targeted by the strikes, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, have all been experiencing record profits, as well as stagnant wages for workers. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources announced last week that, starting today, 12 counties in southern Wisconsin will be under a special fire order until further notice. The order, which was instated due to drought conditions, requires a permit for anyone burning debris or in a barrel in order to restrict the likelihood of wildfires. The order does not apply to campfires for warmth or cooking, nor does it apply inside incorporated areas. The order will likely remain in place until precipitation ends the drought. Republican lawmakers in Wisconsin announced a bill today that would provide more than $600 million of public funding to repair and renovate the Milwaukee Brewers Stadium. That number is significantly higher than the $300 million that Governor Evers proposed in his state budget earlier this year, reports the Associated Press. Democratic lawmakers were skeptical of the proposal since it also requires Milwaukee to kick in public funds to support the renovation, with the city required to raise more than $200 million of the proposed funds. Mark Anatasio, the principal owner of the Brewers, has a net worth of over $700 million. The team has been threatening to leave Milwaukee, which is currently the smallest media market for a major league team. The proposal will have to pass the Republican-controlled legislature and then be signed into law by the governor, who says he looks forward to looking over the proposal. 
Shipping costs on the Mississippi River have risen sharply as low rains across the watershed have led to low water levels and smaller barges on the river. The shipping cost increases come just as farmers in the upper Midwest prepare for their fall shipments of soybeans, wheat, and corn, reports Channel 3000 News. About 60% of U.S. grain exports travel by barge down the Mississippi to New Orleans, but the cost this year is more than 70% higher than average. The lack of rain in the Midwest has also impacted crop yields, with large parts of the corn and soybean crops graded to be in poor condition. Madison's Bree Stevens Field hosted the Viva Mexico Fest on Sunday to celebrate Mexican Independence Day. The annual event, which celebrated its 22nd anniversary, honors Mexican culture and tradition, and included a car parade, flag ceremony, and folk dances. Mexican Independence Day, September 16th, marks the beginning of National Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs from the 15th of September to the 15th of October. The Wisconsin coffee chain Mocha has continued to refuse to pay a worker extra for her work Christmas, despite never communicating to her that it would not continue its practice of extra holiday pay. The Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development threatened litigation against the lacrosse-based company in June of this year due to the complaint, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. However, in July, the department contacted the worker to say that the district attorney had declined to pursue her claim due to budgetary considerations. The Dane County District Attorney has not taken up any wage claims in some time, leaving very little enforcement mechanisms against wage theft. The sale of The Gobbler, a concert venue on I-94, has been cancelled after the buyer suffered a knee injury and realized he could have several strenuous months of recovery, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The venue has long been a local fixture, due in part to its unusual building shape and its prominence next to the interstate. The property is now back on the market with an asking price of $1.4 million. And now, on to today's top stories. Truman Lowe was an internationally acclaimed sculptor who drew on his Ho-Chunk roots to spotlight a unique perspective. On Friday, UW-Madison unveiled an exhibit of one of his more famous works, an aluminum sculpture titled Effigy, Bird Form. WORT heard from two of his former colleagues and friends to learn more about the artist and his connection to Wisconsin. WORT news producer Faye Parks has that story. After more than 25 years of travel, from the White House Garden in Washington, D.C. to Kalamazoo, Michigan, a Truman Lowe original sculpture has found its home in Madison. On Friday, UW-Madison unveiled effigy bird form and celebrated Lowe's long career. WORT contributor David Ahrens was in attendance and captured some audio of the event. Truman Lowe was an acclaimed Ho-Chunk artist who worked as a fine arts professor at UW-Madison for decades. He was also a curator of contemporary art for the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian for many years. He passed away in 2019 at the age of 75. His colleague and friend, Beloit College Professor Emerita Joe Ortel, wrote an art historical analysis of Lowe's work in 2003 titled Woodland Reflections, The Art of Truman Lowe. She says that his Native American culture factored strongly into his art. It was both sort of an intuitive decision, but it was also kind of conscious because he was very aware of the arts and crafts traditions of the Ho-Chunk Nation, of, of the tribe. And so he was sort of drawing on that kind of heritage as well. 
Larry Sailing collaborated with Lowe to create effigy bird form more than half a century ago. He says the sculpture is in the abstract shape of a bird in flight with narrow wings and a broader body. Sailing and Lowe worked on a number of projects together. As custom metals shop foreman at Hooper, Sailing would go over the sculptor's plans and help him execute the final product. As a result, Sailing had a lot of insight into Lowe's creative process and his personality. Very soft-spoken, laid-back, easygoing, had a great sense of humor, and he was. He was a pleasure to work with. He was just like one of the guys, I would say. Lowe's laid-back approach also extended to his teaching. Ortel says that this philosophy was an answer to some of his own frustrations when he was a student. He said at one point that he wanted to teach the way he wished he had been taught. In other words, when he was in elementary school, for example, he was taught by rote memorization, that kind of thing. When he started teaching at the university level or even before that, he really was trying to encourage people to find their own creativity so that he would leave it wide open, like an assignment would be wide open. You can do this, that, and the other. You just have to use this material, for example. His art was exhibited worldwide, from Europe to Africa to South America. But Wisconsin was his home. According to Ortel, he would be happy to see effigy bird form find a spot at UW-Madison. He loved the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He loved being there. Um, He loved being around so many new ideas. That's one thing that he always said. And he also had this passion for the, the effigy mounds and the linear mounds in this region, and especially the ones that are on the UW-Madison campus. I remember he took me to visit the effigy mounds that are up on the top of Observatory Drive on that hilltop. And so to have his effigy bird form sculpture just down the hill and sort of pointing up towards those mounds, is he would be, I'm sure he's very happy. It's almost as if the sculpture has come home and joined the other mounds. As of last Friday, Lowe's sculpture stands north of Van Heys Hall, on the southwest corner of North Charter Street and University Drive. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Hundreds of nurses are asking for greater pay scale transparency and voicing their concerns and objections to pay caps for more experienced members. Tensions have only worsened after revelations that UW Health had a profit of $273 million, while wages for their more senior staff remained capped. They have begun speaking out publicly in regard to these issues. WORT reporter Charlie Bielowski talked with Colin Gillis, a nurse with SEIU Wisconsin. All right then, Colin. Uh, In regards to these wage caps and everything else that's being discussed in the meet and discuss, like where is that right now? What's going on? So we're, we're we came to a, an historic agreement with UW Health a year ago um, at this time, where we won a union voice for nurses uh, at our hospital system for the first time since uh, Act 10, and um, we've been raising proposals presenting proposals to our administrative counterparts. And while we've seen some movement in some areas, we have yet to win a concrete improvement through the meet and discuss process and nurses' patience is running thin. All right. And what are your main talking points or main demands that you're looking for in these meet and talks? So 
our members have consistently told us that compensation is their top priority. And we have noticed that there's a churn and burn approach to staffing at our hospital system. And uh, that churn, part of that churn and burn s- system is capping the wages of nurses, which undervalues the work of experienced nurses and makes for a less, a less safe uh, environment for patients and a, a place that's more difficult to learn as a new nurse because there's a lack of experienced mentors available. And what are the next steps for you guys? We are going to um, continue to try to work within the meet and discuss process. Um, We really believe that we can collaborate and uh, improve our workplace through this process. But uh, if we don't see improvements soon, um, if we don't see wage caps for nurses lifted, we're going to uh, increase pressure through other means by uh, through by bringing pressure from the community, from the media, and through uh, potentially labor action. Senator Tammy Baldwin is expected to join the nurses in their call for retention, safe staffing, and quality patient care. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last week, WORT interviewed local advocate David Hart on proposed rate hikes from two Madison Energy companies. He says that these hikes would disproportionately affect low-income communities of color when there are money-saving options out there. This afternoon, WORT news producer Faye Parks spoke with Abby Novinska-Lois, executive director at Healthy Climate Wisconsin, an organization of Wisconsin healthcare professionals that advocates for climate action through a medical lens. The group agrees with other organizations that say energy rate hikes are not the best move for Alliant Energy and MG&E. First of all, thank you for joining me, Abby. Thank you for having me. For folks listening in, what is Healthy Climate Wisconsin and what is your mission? Healthy Climate Wisconsin is led by nurses, doctors, healthcare workers, and public health leaders across Wisconsin, Bernstein to Superior. And we united because we were seeing the far-reaching impacts of air pollution and water contamination from fossil fuels and the climate crisis on the health of our communities and patients. And to prevent that health suffering and truly protect the communities we serve, we knew we needed to go beyond our exam rooms and offices to build solutions that impact the well-being of Wisconsinites in our everyday lives, where they live, work, and play. And that means public transit, healthy foods, renewable energy, 
and other climate solutions that can prevent illness. And so we united behind a shared vision for a brighter future, and that future where every Wisconsinite, no matter their race, income, gender, or ability, has an environment that can sustain a long, happy, and healthy life. And we believe that all Wisconsinites should have a say in the decisions that impact their health. What are the main health concerns surrounding climate change? Yeah, that's a great question, and really it's quite broad. So climate change causes heat-related illness, injuries and deaths from dangerous flooding events. We see illnesses from contaminated food and water and infectious diseases spread by mosquitoes and ticks. And these health harms can be really serious and impact our Wisconsin healthcare system. We've already seen financial costs that falls on our families and taxpayers. So we know that with just 100% renewable energy in Wisconsin, we could avoid up to 21 billion in avoided health damages every year and prevent over 34,000 asthma attacks and 2,000 premature deaths each year. And that's just in our state alone. As we've heard, MG&E and Align Energy are considering rate hikes in the coming year. Can you outline the reasoning for us? So what we're hearing from both Madison Gas and Electric and Alliance Energy is they want to raise rates quite significantly, mostly for their residential customers. So that's everyday working families. Those rates would be quite higher than what they're proposing for increases for businesses and industry. And they say that it's clean energy infrastructure investments that are driving the rate hikes. But in some ways, that's in this direction because their profit rates, so their return on equity, is above the national average at 9.8% and 10% for Alliant Energy. And so we're concerned that these profits that are always going to be considered for them as far as that return on equity, because our, as customers, we can't choose to go to a different utility. We're kind of locked in geographically to this one utility that serves us, that those profits right now are being put above our health. And it's really at the expense of black, brown, and low to moderate income families in Wisconsin. So to clarify, they're actually saying that renewable energy is costing them and that's why they need to put that cost onto consumers? Yes. But you actually argue that renewable energy is a better financial option. Why is that? Yeah, well, renewable energy provides a lot of security for our communities. And so we saw in the last year how volatile the prices can really be for things like fossil gas. You know, when we depend on an energy system that's global, we know that conflicts such as what's happened in Ukraine drove up gas prices or whether, you know, there's volatility in other global markets changes those rates that come to us. But solar energy and wind energy is a lot, you know, more stable. We know that the sun continues to shine and the wind continues to blow in Wisconsin, and we don't have to really depend on markets around the world to make sure that our energy can be affordable. We can also produce it on our own rooftops and lower the amount that we need to begin with. And so that's one of the other huge concerns with these proposals that we're seeing is that Alliance and Madison Gas and Electric both proposed to disrupt net metering plans. And net metering is 
a policy that allows people who have solar panels on their roof and they produce more energy than they're using, that excess is actually returned to the grid and they can get money back from their utility for that energy. And that makes solar more affordable and appealing for families, for businesses and health clinics. And it can also lower surges and how much electricity we need as a community. So when we have these big heat waves, like we saw this summer, we have these huge electricity surges because everyone's turning on their air conditioning. But if more people have rooftop solar or energy efficiency and weatherization in their homes, they're not using as much energy from the grid to begin with. So it can also lower the cost of those surges, which can be expensive. Studies have shown that low-income communities of color especially will feel the effects of climate change more than any other demographic. Can you walk us through that? We know that a lot of the places that are actually spewing air pollution right now actually are also targeting black and brown communities, especially formerly redlined communities have much higher rates of air and water contamination from fossil fuels. So not only are those communities in the front lines when climate health harms occur, But I would also argue that right now they are experiencing a lot higher health harms from pollution already occurring in our communities. These high price rates, these changes to our utility bills also have, you know, a really important impact on these communities as well, because the legacy of racist housing policies and job and income discrimination contributes to more black and brown families living in inefficient homes that have higher energy costs and white families. And so low to moderate income families will also shoulder a higher health burden of these rate hikes because we know that energy prices are actually related to our health. When we see these increases in energy bills for families that are already struggling to make ends meet, we see that households often sacrifice their health pay for these high energy bills, and that leads to chronic stress and exacerbated healthcare costs down the road. So according to the U.S. Energy Information Association, more than one in five households in the U.S. right now report reducing or forgoing basic necessities like food or medicines to pay for electricity costs. In this situation, which a lot of health researchers refer to as heat or eats, poses a high risk of malnutrition for children, or families will choose to lower their bills by not heating or cooling their home to safe levels. And that can cause physical and mental health impacts. So health studies have found that an improperly heated home can put teens at five times the risk for mental health problems. It doubles the rate of respiratory issues. It's associated with increased infection rates. It can put stress on the heart and it can worsen joint issues like arthritis and rheumatism. And we also see health risks for families that don't have access to air conditioning or a cool spot in the summer, as we're seeing more heat waves, that has health impacts as well if you don't have it safely cooled. Can you speak to the general response from the Public Service Commission? Would you say they're likely to approve these hikes? I really can't say for now because they they keep their response pretty close to their chest. We did see in a rate case like this last year, in the Milwaukee, broader Milwaukee area, we energies applied for a significant rate hike. They lowered the percent uh, from what was originally proposed after so many members of the public came out in response 
and spoke up about how much this would harm ability to make ends meet. So it really can make a difference if communities come out, especially after that case, the Public Service Commission said they would look into a percentage of income plan, which would change how much you're actually paying based on your family's income for utility bills. And so we're hoping they also can accelerate that pilot and consider a plan like that in this case. Thank you again for speaking with me, Abby. Thank you. The time now is 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us tonight. Last Thursday, the Republican-held state assembly cast a midnight vote to move forward with redistricting in Wisconsin. One Milwaukee Democrat, Representative Lakeisha Myers, joined her conservative colleagues in the majority. Hours before that vote, WORT's A Public Affair heard from Associate Professor Philip Rocco of of Marquette University's Department of Political Science. Host Nate Carlin had pressing questions about this sudden shift from state Republicans, namely, why redistrict Wisconsin now and why this way when a Supreme Court case is on the horizon. Assembly Speaker Voss has floated a Iowa-style approach to, to redistricting. What is the Iowa way? Well, there's the Iowa way, and then there's what was proposed this week. So let me distinguish between those two things. So Iowa is a state that for years has been seen by advocates of nonpartisan redistricting as a model state, because even though it's controlled by Republicans, you know, Republicans tend to win. That does sort of reflect Iowa's political geography. The redistricting process in Iowa uh, works like this. There's a nonpartisan legislative services bureau, which is staffed by civil servants, not politically appointed. They draw maps and they are not allowed to use partisanship in drawing the maps, right? They propose a map to the state legislature. The state legislature can reject it force them to go back to the drawing board, then they can propose another one, and then the state legislature can reject that one, and then they can go back a third time. And the state legislature at that point can amend the map, but it requires more than a simple majority vote. It requires 75% of the legislative chamber's members to vote on it. So for all practical purposes, that means that it's really, really hard for the state legislature to reject a map that is drawn without consideration of partisanship in favor of one that is. And if they do introduce partisanship into the calculation when they're making those maps, then the state Supreme Court there can review it. That's the Iowa model, okay? And advocates of redistricting reform in Wisconsin have for years pressed for Wisconsin to adopt that model. And on Monday, after years of not wanting to do that and never giving an indication that he wanted to do that, Robin Voss, the state assembly speaker and a Republican, introduced something that he called an Iowa-style model. And if you look at it on its surface, it looks somewhat like what I just described as the Iowa model. You know, the Legislative Reference Bureau would draw maps and this, you know, legislature would then vote on them. And they sort of have three bites at the apple. There's one difference, though, which is that third map, the only map that the legislature itself can amend, 
does not require a supermajority, does not require, you know, 75% of the legislature to pass. It only requires a simple majority. And there's also a little provision in there about how the process itself is not judicially enforceable. And so those two little changes taken together don't seem significant. But in reality, what it means is the state legislature could reject nonpartisan maps proposed by the Legislative Reference Bureau twice, then accept the third one and amend it to include partisan factors, reenacting the gerrymander, and with a simple majority of both chambers of the legislature, they could enact that gerrymandered map. So, in, and the governor could, of course, veto it, and and you know might at that point go to the Supreme Court. But it is really once you think about that part of the process, it's different from the current process we have in Wisconsin only facially, only at a, at a really surface level. Uh, because in reality, there would be very little from pre- preventing the legislature from enacting amended maps that have partisan gerrymanders in them. Yeah, it does seem like it gets at kind of the, the conundrum of gerrymandering, which is you can't trust the legislature to ungerrymander themselves because they exist because of the gerrymander. Well, right. And I, and I think the thing is the reason why voters and redistricting advocates have pressed for the Iowa model in Wisconsin is that our state legis- our state constitution requires the legislature to be involved in redistricting. And so you could, of course, change the constitution and move it to a, a nonpartisan redistricting commission, but that means changing the constitution. That's kind of politically, that's a heavier lift. And so the Iowa model has been seen as kind of the alternative. But the reality is what has been proposed is not really the Iowa model because it doesn't really bind the legislature in any way to nonpartisan maps. And the question you have to ask yourself is why, after years of not you know, being interested at all in nonpartisan redistricting and more or less admitting that the state's maps were drawn with an eye towards partisan advantage, does the Speaker of the State Assembly now on a Monday, propose a bill that is now going to be voted on today, Thursday, September 14th, in the State Assembly with no hearings. What is that about? And it, does it really reflect a, shall we say, a change of heart about the uh, conditions under which the state redistrict itself? Residents of Dane County struggle with rent no matter their walks of life, from college students to those who are homeless. The issue has only gotten more pressing in recent years. WORT reporter Charlie Bielowski took to the streets of Madison to see what residents had to say about their rent. So first question, can I get your name, please? Aiden McCarthy. My name is Jay Turner. I'm a student here at UW-Madison. I'm going to be a sophomore this year. My name is Mallory Schaefer. My name's Sam Arnold. I'm Will. Ellie. Yeah, my name is Adam. Yeah, David Loddington. How much do you usually pay a month in rent? 14, 1500. Last semester I paid 11, so around there the last two years. Uh, 1200. Right now I'm paying about 500 a month in a shared room. So I'm living in College Park, which is right across from Smith, and I pay $700 a month. I live in Park Place, 1100. Um, I live in a house, I pay 600. I pay about 900, 930 bucks, but I've been renting forever, so the landlords live above. They like me as a tenant. I've been there forever, and they just don't raise the rent very much. Actually, I was living in Cambridge for the past four years, and then rent went up. 
we had my son, who's about to be a one, uh, on September 27th. It turns out me and my wife both have to work and pay for daycare and still can't even afford a one to two bedroom apartment sufficiently. So she's with family and I'm out here. And I've only been out here for three months and just playing that patient game, waiting for my disability kick in and waiting for the government to help, but still waiting, waiting, waiting. I'm with all the programs out here looking for housing and the subsidized housing and section eight. And there's such a very long, long wait list. Uh, it's incredible. Nobody's doing anything about it. And uh, do you think that's affordable? I think it's ridiculous. I think as a college student, you should pay no more than like 800 bucks for rent. But I live at the Hub, and there's an influx of applicants every year. They know people are going to pay the rent, so they just keep jacking it up. And I think they're going to do the same next year as well. Where I'm at, I live in a one-bedroom, one-bath, so it's pretty spacious. So I think it's affordable, fitting for my needs. So, yeah. For what it is, no, it's not a very nice place. And for the price, it's definitely not affordable. I think it's more affordable than a lot of the housing here. Um, but do I think it's affordable? No. Not super affordable, but we make it work. I'd say mine is, yeah, probably affordable compared to other places. Well, for me it is. I mean, I work, and so it's affordable, but I'm also in a very lucky position because, like I said, I've been renting at the same place for probably 15 years or so, and the landlords are an older couple, and they're very happy to have me there, so they don't put pressure. So I'm below market, actually. I'm, I'm lucky in that way. Base it off what your job uh, pays you an hour. I mean, literally, I just got a part-time job at Jimmy John's for $12 an hour. Literally, I make enough to pay my child support for my oldest son, and that's it. I don't even make anything extra. My wife makes uh, about $5,000 a month still with all the bills and everything, especially daycare, and that's still not enough to have a home, like a family home. So, and realistically, like $800 a month would be reasonable for a two-bedroom. I mean, that's what I'm normally used to, and I'm from Chicago. What would affordable housing look like to you? What does it mean to you? Solid amenities, nothing too crazy if you're a college student. I feel like that all it really means is like washer and dryer, um, shared living space. Just the basics. You don't need nothing crazy as a college student. And I get it. Like, that's why the rent is so high in the hub, because amenities are like out the roof. Yeah, you really don't need too much. I guess it depends coming from a different financial background, but since I'm more from like a stable financial background, my parents are able to afford the apartment I live in. But for an individual who may come from a different type of background, it may be harder for them to pay for that type of rent and things like that, and finding housing in Madison. A place that you can pay on a college student's like wage. I mean, it's hard to work as a student a lot, so we're not making enough money to make up what we're losing. I would define affordable housing as I would say probably about 400 to 600 dollars a month I would say it's a lot more reasonable than 700 to upwards of 12 1500 dollars say I mean the average household income should be able to afford it you know it shouldn't be ridiculous like you shouldn't have to be taking out loans and stuff yeah, I mean, you should be able to pay it off with a like a regular, maybe part-time job if you're a college student because you don't have time to work full-time if you're going to school. Well, I mean, affordable housing is, is I mean, I, I don't know quite how you define it. I mean, it's uh, if, if people can afford to live there. I mean, I meet a lot of people these days, young kids, who can't live in Madison. They're living 40 minutes out because they can't afford it. So there is an affordable housing problem, no matter how you define it for everybody else or for everybody, it's what they can afford. And most young people can't afford to live in Madison at this point. 
I guess you can kind of look at it like how the government defines affordable housing. If you know people who have SSI, they base it off a certain percentage of what they get paid every month. Why can't they do that for everybody else? So that way they're able to get their food and everything else they need, and they're still able to pay their rent. I mean, why is that not acceptable for people who make enough money to pay their bills, but for the people who don't make enough money, they're required to literally give away the money the government gives them just to live. And the government's supposed to be helping, but that money goes right back in the government's pocket. And any final thoughts on the matter? Like, anything else you'd want to say? Lower the rent. I think the university should take action to create more affordable housing opportunities just because, I mean, I am getting assistance from my parents, but a lot of people aren't as fortunate and a lot of people come from areas or they're here on scholarship and their scholarship covers their tuition and lets them um, get their education, but they don't have a safe place to live. So yeah, I think the university should take more action in regards to making affordable housing accessible. I would say, Matt, University of Wisconsin keeps over, over admitting. I mean, record classes every single year. Don't have enough dorms, so they're putting them up in hotel rooms. I mean, it's not long before the whole house scene is gone and it's replaced with high-rise apartment buildings, which is kind of sad to see. Yeah, I'll pray for the future students because they're, they're not going to have any options for cheaper housing. It's just going to be the super expensive apartments. Well, uh, Madison's always had problems with housing. I mean, from, you know student kind of slums where landlords haven't kept up with things to all the buildings, the new luxury apartments and stuff, trying to capitalize on people who have a lot of money. And we definitely need more, more housing. And one thing I would like to say on that, it's not directly on it, but it is, um, the homeless residents of Madison need to be listened to and they need to be part of the conversation. Being homeless out here on this side of the sidewalk, sir, has uh, not only humbled me, but it's also taught me a lot of, uh, it's taught me how to actually view people. As a homeless veteran out here, I've been beat up, I've been robbed, I've been having food thrown at me, I've been threatened. Um, I fought for their freedom and that right for them to feel that way. And that's something that actually I had to have a reality check with. But being out here and watching the homeless and a lot of the homeless get comfortable with the fact that the government helps them with their food and their monthly check and they don't really need to pay bills but a lot of us actually want to get off the street and we can't even afford that. Yesterday, September 17th, was the anniversary of a violent episode in the Irish postal strike of 1922. The strike was a pivotal confrontation for labor during the Irish Civil War and still has ramifications for today. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez Who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters Up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered Who struggle brave and long For the union men and women Standing up and standing strong Yesterday, September 17th, is the anniversary of the 1922 incident in which the Irish Army shot at four striking postal workers in Dublin in the new Irish Free State. It was one of the most serious clashes during the strike. A week earlier, most of the 13,500 postal workers had walked off the job to protest across-the-board pay cuts. Fortunately, the shooting only slightly injured one of the four workers present, Oliver Flood, whose garter belt deflected the bullet. A journalist reported that the incident had no effect on the determination of the girls to carry on. The September strike had been brewing for many long months before it happened, Ironically, the striker's adversary was Postmaster General J.J. Walsh, who had been a Republican radical, an active trade unionist, and post office sorting clerk 
and telegraphist. But early in 1922, his first act as postmaster was to cut postal workers' pay by slashing cost of living bonuses that had begun during World War I. The postal workers' response was swift and defiant. On February 19th, postal workers in Cork, for example, voted unanimously to strike. The postmaster sent a secret telegram to his British counterpart asking him to send loyal British postal workers from Britain to replace strikers. The telegram was leaked to the unions, which caused a great uproar, especially with Labour Party Parliament members. The Minister of Labour threatened to resign over the telegram. Three government ministers met with a postal union delegation February 28th. The government reached an agreement with the union on March 5th, just four hours before the strike deadline. They agreed to an independent commission to inquire into the wages and working conditions. The commission issued an interim report on May 11th calling for a 12.5% wage increase to compensate for the bonus reduction. The commission recognized the reduction had caused hardship to the workers. However, the outbreak of civil war on June 28th gave the Postal Department an excuse to withdraw its cooperation from the commission inquiry, which was then suspended. Secretly, the government began preparing its own cost of living to justify pay reductions. When this became public on September 4th, special union meeting delegates passed a resolution threatening to strike if the government proposed pay cuts. The resolution was unanimously endorsed by the National Executive Committee. The government refused to recognize civil servants' right to strike and warned the workers that they would be fired if they struck and if reinstated afterwards would lose their pensions. The Postmaster General gave an interview with the Irish Independent that claimed the workers had never struck when the British were in charge and had never supported the Republican movement during the War for Independence. This was untrue because the postal unions had joined the 1918 general strike protest British conscription plans, and again in 1920 to demand the release of hunger strikers from Mountjoy Prison in Dublin, which included J.J. Walsh himself at the time. Workers' handbills bitterly reminded Walsh that he would still be in prison if they had not had the right to strike in March of 1920. The union appealed for a reinstatement of the commission and no pay cuts. This appeal was ignored. The strike began violently on September 10th when the army fired on strikers in Dublin. The public was in support of the strike despite government and media propaganda against the strikers. It was the first major strike against the new government. After almost three weeks of military and police harassment and intimidation and arrests of thousands, the government and union agreed to settlement terms on September 29th. Wages were reduced, but the workers were allowed to return to their jobs with promise of no retaliations from the President and the Labor Party. However, this promise was soon broken by the Postmaster. The Union spent much of the rest of 1922 and 1923 dealing with appeals by workers who had been dismissed or demoted because they had gone on strike. The government regarded the strike as a break in service affecting pension rates. The pensions were not fully restored until 1932. Militant strikes during 1922 through 1924 were widespread across Ireland and tragically often lost with the government siding with the bosses. But those are stories for another day. For the past in the past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.52 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. 
Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new films. On the big screen, a new movie adaptation of an Agatha Christie murder mystery, A Haunting in Venice. On the small screen, Springsteen on Broadway, a documentary of the boss's intimate Broadway show. In it, he talks about his life, loves, and music. Come with me to a seance. Spot the con I can't. Detective, you are here to discredit me, but I can talk to the dead. That was lit from the trailer for A Haunting in Venice, directed by Kenneth Branagh. This is the third and darkest so far in his take on Agatha Christie's incredible detective Hercule Poirot. The story is set in 1947 in a broken-down mansion on the canals of Venice. Our story opens with Poirot in a self-imposed exile. Having retired from sleuthing, he's even hired an ex-cop to keep people away who want to hire him. He's settled into a comfortable routine that he reluctantly breaks at the insistence of successful mystery writer Ari Adney Oliver, Tina Fey, who manages to lighten an otherwise grim story, which reportedly has taken some liberties with Halloween Party one of Christie's lesser-known stories. This mixes more horror than Christie's version. For this, we can thank or blame, depending on your view, screenwriter Michael Green. Oliver, whose last three mysteries were undeservedly panned by critics, at least according to her, needs Poirot to join her at a seance where a great opera singer, Rowena Drake, Kelly Riley, is seeking to contact her dead daughter. Oliver needs Poirot, who's the second smartest person she knows. She's the smartest, to figure out how the medium, Mrs. Reynolds, the always great Michelle Yeoh, does it. Poirot is the ultimate skeptic, as we see when he first confronts Mrs. Reynolds. But Oliver, the author, is half convinced Reynolds is for real and is planning her next novel around the encounter. A generous, rich Drake has opened her house to the poor children of Venice for their first Halloween. She lives in a spooky old mansion in a city filled with haunted places. Drake's home was an ancient hospital where children were abandoned by their doctors and nurses. The children died of the plague. This is all explained by shadow puppets. When the kids leave the seance, is set up in the room of Drake's daughter. Among the guests at the seance is a nervous doctor, Jamie Dornan, and his protective, precocious son, Jude Hill, and Poirot's bodyguard, Ricardo Scamacho. There's a horrible murder which forces Poirot to take charge and lock everyone, including a frightened housekeeper, Camille Cotton, inside. She is superstitious and has never stayed overnight in the mansion. Poirot, slight spoiler here, solves the case. The story has enough twists and turns with some haunting effects to keep us going to that great reveal. The cinematographer Harris Zambarlu Cuso has done a marvelous job showing us Venice's lighter and darker sides. A fun film worth seeing on the big screen, mostly for the fine cinematography. Up next, a story from Broadway, now on the small screen. This is your life. I wanted to be able to celebrate and honor its beauty. I wanted to be able to be a critical voice when I thought that that's what the times called for. I wanted to know my story, your story, where were we going together as a people. That was clip from the trailer for Springsteen on Broadway, directed by Tom Zimmy. This is a moving, self-deprecating Springsteen sitting on stage, telling us highlights of his life and occasionally playing some of his most evocative work. The documentary has seamlessly melded two private shows Springsteen performed as a part of his Broadway presentation at New York's Walter Kerr Theater, which seats about 950 people. While nothing is quite like being live in a theater or a big screen presentation like some big-time reviewers received, 
This is still a powerful, moving piece of work. Still, it's a shame Netflix didn't release a big screen version for the rest of us. Springsteen starts out with an extended dialogue of his early stage life where his first band plays every venue in his area, even bar mitzvahs. He tells the story that his girlfriend got a promoter to come discover them. They played their hearts out. At the end, Springsteen was sopping wet. The promoter came and shook his hand, declaring them the best unsigned band he had ever heard. Then he went off, slept with Springsteen's girlfriend, and was never seen again. So Springsteen decided they had to leave town, which leads to a great story of how he sort of learns to drive a stick on the way to California. California. He paints a vivid picture of his life with some truly intimate moments. He's on stage by himself for almost the entire two and a half hours, except for a brief performance with his spouse and fellow East Street band member, Petty Schialfa. Springsteen talks about what a small world it is. He recalls being on the road and picking up a copy of Born on the Fourth of July by Vietnam vet Ron Kovic. A few days later, he was at a motel pool, and a man in a wheelchair introduced himself. I'm Ron Kovic. Springsteen replies, I just read your book. Kovic invited him to a meeting of vets. Springsteen says it was an over overwhelming experience and led to his song, Darkness on the Edge of Town. So many great stories and great songs. I highly recommend this documentary, now playing on Netflix. For WAT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Charlie Bielowski. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Nicholas Leet for technical production, and Russ Mackey for script editing. Ken Brady engineered the show tonight, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.